I'm Fiona Lee, and welcome to Inside Aircom. So we've talked a lot on the show about how business growth depends on great teamwork, whether it's teamwork between product and marketing teams, or sales and marketing, or engineering and design. But perhaps what we don't talk enough about is just what effective work actually looks like, regardless of the team you're on. That's why I'm so excited we've got Jake Knapp on the show today. Jake's a design expert who's best known for creating the design sprint process while he was at Google Ventures. Design sprints have become a really popular way for teams to rapidly build and prototype new product ideas, all in a matter of days. But Jake isn't here to talk to us about designing products. Rather, he's on a mission to help people and teams redesign time itself, so that each of us, no matter our role, can focus on doing the work that matters most to us. Jake's time management insights come from his years of experience leading design sprints for companies like Slack and Uber and the New York Times. Recently, he and a fellow designer, John Sarasky, pulled together their insights and published them in a new book called Make Time, where they explain how the principles that make design sprints so successful can actually be applied to everyday work. In today's episode, Intercom's director of brand design, Stuart Scott Curran, talks with Jake about why time management is such a struggle for teams at the workplace. At work, there's this default that if somebody sends me an email, I should reply all, I should answer as quickly as I can. When it doesn't actually matter if it's an email or a Slack mess, it doesn't matter. Like I should, I should try to get on top of that as fast as I can. That's the default for most cultures. How teams and individuals can create time to do things that actually make a difference you can get into laser mode for 60 to 90 minutes every day on this largest thing that really matters to you, whether it's at work or it's at home with your family or it's a hobby, a practicing musical instrument, whatever it might be, that changes the way you'll feel about that calendar. And how product teams can design products that encourage users to build better habits without sacrificing product usage or business goals. I think it's actually going to be in your business interest to figure out how to build something that has meaning beyond just taking advantage of those glitches, beyond just sucking people back and back and back. People are going to get savvy to that. No matter whether you're someone looking to pick up time management tips for yourself or a team leader who just wants to encourage better team collaboration, Jake's got some good insights for you. So let's go into the studio and listen in on a conversation. You're listening to Inside Intercom. Intercom, making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com. Jake, welcome to Inside Intercom. Thank you for, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm, I'm really excited to be here with you in this little foam-walled room. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't spoil the magic. Yeah, the, that's, right, that's right. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> in our palatial podcast suite. That's right, it's... yeah. <laughs> Sweeping views. <laughs> I'm really excited to talk to you today. You've recently written a great book, which I've had the pleasure of reading, called Make Time. But first, I think it would be really valuable if you could just give us a quick recap of your career so far and, and how it led to you writing this book. Sure. Yeah. I always struggle to make recaps of my career quick, partly because I guess I'm, I'm old. I've been, work, I've been working for a long time, so there's a lot of different things that happened. But looking back, it feels like, oh, yeah, all these things kind of led to uh, the way I see things now or think about things now. But, you know, as a kid, I was really into computers and building things, building games. And I had my first job at Oakley uh, working on their website. The, this is a sunglasses company. 
went and got a job at Microsoft working on Microsoft Encarta, again, as a product designer. And um, if the listeners don't know what Microsoft mm-hmm. Encarta was, it used I to remember. be, it was an encyclopedia on, yeah. on CD-ROM. And I worked on that for a few years. I worked on a, a project we were trying to, uh, some new project at Microsoft, like a hardware device we were trying to build. That project got killed in sort of frustration. I left Microsoft. I, I was able to get a job at Google, which was really exciting for me. And I worked at Google in the end for 10 years, five years at Google, five years at Google Ventures. And I created the design sprint process while at Google and then really perfected it at Google Ventures while working with my colleagues there with a lot of different startups. So Make Time is the first post-Sprint book. I guess mm-hmm. there's, there's a book Sprint that I wrote um, that came out in 2016. And, uh, and yeah, Make Time comes out this year. And it's in some ways applying a lot of the learnings from being inside tech and and building products and then getting into this place where I was trying to design time and how a team could best spend mm-hmm. their time when starting a project over the course of a, sort of a very structured, highly crafted week, and that's what the design sprint is, to this idea of how does an individual do something like that every day. Mm-hmm. I'm excited to, to talk a little bit more about the, the design sprint process and how that's influenced your yeah, thinking on the yeah, book yeah. Um, a little bit more. But what are some of the big takeaways that you're hoping readers will get from from Make Time? Well, the thing with Make Time, I guess, is I think we, we have a lot of demands on us today. You know, and if you are listening to this, if you're if you are building products, if you're in the tech industry at all, there's a good chance you feel very busy a lot of the time. And actually, I think it's I don't think it's just inside tech. I think it's in all all kinds of avenues of life. Today, we feel very busy. In fact, um, I feel like every time I see somebody and they're like, Oh, how are you? Like the, the, the answer, usually busy, right? Like That's exactly <laughs> what I was thinking on the on the yeah. way to work this morning. It's, it's almost like an instinctual response ins- now, yes. isn't it? Yeah. And, I've, and I've personally been been trying to consciously avoid yeah. saying that and saying something and a little bit more meaningful. And it's super hard. It's hard. I mean, I think it's actually a, a failure of the English language. We don't have a word that means, you know, things are are full and purposeful mm. and exciting. Yeah. And, you know, we, we busy means all kinds of things, but mostly what what the word sounds, it's, it's stressful. And, right. you know, we say it and we think like, oh, that's good that you're busy. It means you, you have work or, you know, yep. if you, if you are in business for yourself, things are, you know, are you have customers well. or yeah. whatever. Right. But yeah. it implies a negative thing. And we all know that feeling of busy is not good. Right. So, yeah. So I think we, a lot, all of us feel this. And I think we also often are, feel, I know I feel this way. I feel guilty because I'm not perfectly on top of my inbox. You know, mm-hmm. my inbox has things mm-hmm. in it that I wish I had dealt with. Mm-hmm. And um, and I feel like I'm, I'm, as I'm looking at, you know, what my friends are doing, whether it's on Twitter or, you know, Instagram or whatever, I feel like, oh gosh, or, or just what other people out there are doing, I feel like I don't measure up well to what they're doing. And I feel like I read the news and I'm stressed about that. And I feel like there's all these things kind of bombarding me constantly and I can never catch up to all of the meetings and all of the to-dos that I have. Now, you know, this is a common feeling, and, and what I hope people will take away from reading Make Time is to feel a little bit less stressed, feel a little bit less guilty about it, to have some tools and a framework for thinking about how they spend their day that lets them make a little bit of space for what matters most to them. Because despite painting that very stressful picture of the world, I also think that we're most of us are very close to making some small shifts that, that change the game. And where you feel like you do have time for the things that really matter to you, you are paying attention to the things that matter to you, even if it's just for a small 
you know, for an hour, hour and a half a day. And that can make a dramatic difference. Yeah, I'm excited for what everybody can take away from that. You know, I think it's something that we all need to think about more. We alluded at the top of the show to, you know, how many of the ideas um, that you share in the book were were tested in the design sprints environment that you that you ran at Google and, you know, the process that, that you went through about on, on crafting that process. In fact, you created the design sprint process yourself. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, uh, the big principles were in a design sprint every day of the week in our recipe, you, there's one focal point. So on Monday, the team makes a map. On Tuesday, the team sketches solutions for this, this big challenge. On Wednesday, they make a decision about which of those are the strongest. And then on Thursday, they build a prototype. And on Friday, they test. So it's map, sketch, decide, prototype, test. Each day, like at the end of the day, you're like, great, we did that thing. Like that thing is done. It's very satisfying. And it's just one thing. Like that's the focal point for the whole day. So John had this idea of starting to apply that himself. Like every day, just writing down, instead of a to-do list, like what's one kind of big thing that I can do today that will make me satisfied at the end of the day? So even when we weren't in a sprint, he started doing this. And I, I stole that idea from him. I started doing it. And I found, gosh, this is really powerful. And then another one of the ideas was, gosh, when you get everybody in the room together, if you force people to shut their laptops and put their phones away, it is amazing how much easier it is to focus, how much better work we get done. Just you have to put in a big speed bump to those distractions. So we started to try to create time in our own days where we had that stuff shut off. You know, I deleted all these apps, every every kind of email and mm. the web browser and Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and the YouTube and the you know news apps, everything off the phone, so that it was just like not noisy to me. You know, not trying to distract me. And I I set up a, a vacation timer on the internet at my house, just things that would shut those things off. We noticed like how you had to monitor people's physical energy to make the their their focus really at its highest. And so these kinds of principles we just started to see worked for us and for teams. Is your thinking on design sprints evolved in any way since you, you kind of first were developing this this concept? You know, it's been it's been around for a little while now. You know, we've run design sprints here. Yeah. I'm sure a lot of our listeners have, have done them too. I'm wondering if your thinking has moved on at all or is that still, you know, really like the best way right now for teams to be thinking about how they build products? I think that it's a it's a tool for building products mm. and it has it has surpassed my expectations for it. You know, originally in the beginning I thought I was working at Google, I saw a lot of really interesting projects and cool ideas and great technologies. It struggled to get to a finished product for a variety of reasons, but it felt like when, and I had, by the time I, I did the first design sprint, it felt like I had been involved with or seen a lot of these beginnings of process. It felt like it's like, we don't really know how to start. And mm -hmm. when you start something big, you need to develop commitment from the team who's working on it and the people who are you know, for lack of a better word, stakeholders, just kind of, a, I think, a corporate speak word, but people who, you know, politically can can cause problems for you on the way to trying to launch a product. You need everyone to be committed. The people who are working on the team need to be committed. So it doesn't mean they agree or everyone, we have consensus, but everybody's got to be committed to what we're doing. And we need some sense of momentum because building a product is hard. So it's really helpful to start off with this feeling of like excitement and energy and like we have something we're moving forward. 
and really what I thought was if I could create a way that helped us get to, you know, commitment and momentum in the beginning, and I could just change the way Google started building products, that would be amazing. So that was my initial goal. And I was really mostly thinking of consumer-facing software products. So mm. I didn't even in the, in the early days of it think about things like Google Ads. But anyway, as it's happened over the last few years, it turned out to be effective at, for all different kinds of things. While I was at Google, I worked on a lot of different kinds of projects that weren't just, you know, apps for consumers. And then at Google Ventures, we were really sort of forced because our portfolio included so many B2B products and things like, uh, you know, a coffee company and mm-hmm. healthcare uh, companies and, you know, products for farmers. We really had to sort of try it in all these different environments and tweak the process so that it would work no, no matter what the, the target was. So it, it is very versatile, right? So I've just made this case for it being very versatile and working in a lot of environments. But it is designed for the beginning of a process. It's a very specific moment. You're about to start something that's going to be costly. It's going to cost you a lot of time or money. And you need momentum and you need commitment. And that's fundamentally, that's what the design sprint is for. So it's not a a cure-all, you know, magic potion that works in every environment, every situation. You shouldn't do design sprints every week. But it really is a great way to start. And I haven't seen a better way to start when you're starting a big, a big challenge. Um, I hope that people will improve on this idea and will take this idea of making a recipe and maybe apply it to other places. But um, I, I think it's a, a really good way to get started. And at its core, that process of getting started is really about optimizing the, that work week for teams like why do you think time management is is such a challenge for for teams in the workplace we talk a lot in the book make time about this idea of defaults and it's something that john and i started talking about while we were writing this book and i realized afterwards that it really applies to the design sprint so now when i teach people about the design sprint i teach this idea right away of defaults there's a default way that we do things and then there's Sometimes those defaults are pretty dumb. And it's like you get a phone, you know, and you, you know, if you get the phone for the first time, you like turn it on, it's got like a default wallpaper and it's got mm-hmm. a default ringtone and it's got a default, you know, set of apps on the home screen. And some of those defaults make sense. You know, the ringtone's usually pretty good, but this might not be the best. It might not be the one you'd choose. And the wallpaper might be okay, but it might not really fit you. And, you know, the apps that are on the home screen probably reflect more about what the manufacturer like really wants to push at you, you know, mm-hmm. like. Like Apple often has like their their latest and greatest app, you know, like home, their, their home app that's on the home screen. It's like for most of us, it probably doesn't make sense that we have a smart home that's compatible with iOS. That's not the majority of us yet. It's on the home screen. So these defaults, sometimes you can see what they are. They're very easy to see in tech products. They exist elsewhere. They exist in our work culture. They exist in our larger culture, just like our, our, our sort of social culture. And a lot of them don't make sense when you examine them. A lot of them are kind of crazy. So at work, there's this default that if somebody sends me an email, I should reply all. I should answer as quickly as I can. You know, uh, it doesn't actually matter if it's an email or a Slack message. It doesn't, doesn't matter. Like I should, I should try to get on top of that as, as, as fast as I can. That's the default for most work cultures. And if somebody puts a meeting on my calendar, I, I should go to it. You know, And meetings should be 30 to 60 minutes because when you – click on the calendar, that's the default. It snaps to 30 or 60 minutes. doesn't matter if it's a small conversation or we're trying to uh, kick off this giant project and maybe really that should take a week or, you know, we, we need to make an agreement to something that we possibly could have come to 
talking to each other in the kitchen, like it's, it's 30 minutes or 60 minutes. And it's very easy to set up recurring meetings. And we think we should have recurring meetings. And we think, you know, the default is I should, I should fill up my 40 hours or my, you know, hopefully it's just 40, but I should fill up my 40 hours. I should give that to the company and I should be as efficient as possible. Mm-hmm. I should play Tetris with my calendar and pack it as full as I can. Then I'm being full, I'm busy, I'm productive. Those are the defaults and they're crazy. They actually get in the way of us doing what's the, the most important. So now, you know, kind of looking through that lens at the design sprint, I, you know, I think that the, those ideas of defaults, they, they affect our ability to do the things we care about as individuals, and they also stand in the way of doing really purposeful, effective work as, as teams. You have a great graphic in the book that, that, that shows a calendar, like, <laughs> solid yeah. from day to night, five days a week. My calendar certainly <laughs> looks like like that. Yeah, my, yeah, yeah. I've experienced that for for many years, so. and, and it's interesting <laughs> because there is sometimes a thing where you 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 go to a thirty minute meeting and the conversation might be wrapped up in like 10, 15 minutes, yeah, right? Yeah, and you but you find yourself like filling the time that's that's still available. Yeah, you know, yeah. like you try and find things to talk about yeah. to to kind of stretch that out to you know, right? Which is crazy, and and you know, I and mean, I'm sure how many of us have had that experience of being in the meeting and realizing like. I don't really need to like to be here, right. I, you know. Yeah. What's the solution? <laughs> yeah. What's the solution for those packed calendars? What's, well, there. You know, honestly, I I don't think I'll be I'll be candid. I don't think people are going to read Make Time and then magically have an empty calendar. I wish that that were the case. I hope that some folks who have the authority to experiment with their their teams' calendars will will read this and think like, wait, that is crazy. But the promise of make time is even if your calendar looks like that, if you do some of the tactics in this book to create some space for yourself and you put what you know to be the most important thing first each day. And I don't mean like literally like I have a to-do list and I'll just do the most important to-do in the morning before. That's that's not enough. Uh, you need to you know, to-dos are too small. You need to think of 60 to 90 minutes where you can really focus and get into what we call laser mode or what, you know, Cal Newport calls deep work or what, you know, in a design sprint, we just, that's like the way we would work where we're focused. We're really intently focused on one thing. But if you can get into laser mode for 60 to 90 minutes every day on this largish thing that really matters to you, whether it's at work or it's at home with your family or it's a hobby or practicing a musical instrument, whatever it might be, that changes the way you'll feel about that calendar. And in that illustration that that we're talking about, we, you know, we have this illustration of like the work week. And I drew at the end like this little face saying, like, what happened at the end of the week? Because often it feels like I don't even remember what happened this week. When you have a schedule like that, it can feel like you're just bouncing around and it's a blur. And by making these small shifts to create a little bit of space that is about the most meaningful, the thing that really matters to you, I think it changes the way that feels. So I'm not going to say you can wave a magic wand to make it go away, but you can change the way it feels, and I think you can dramatically change what you're doing so that you know the things that, that matter most are really effective for you come first. I do think there are experiments that teams can run on their calendars to change the game in a big, big, big way. So an individual can do this and and do it today and, and see a, see a change. Yeah, um, teams could be so much more effective. That's not this this is not a book for teams, but yeah, that's actually what I was going to ask a, a little bit. It was like you know this 
for like an individual's day, you can apply those tactics and you can follow those. But like, how does that scale at a team level or a, or a company level? Like, does that scale? Like, what are some of the tactics that we can pull across like larger groups of people? Yeah, well, let's talk about starting small. There are ways to start big, but starting small, I think there are some things you can do explicitly to change the culture, then change some of these defaults in your work culture. And so this default of answering email as, as fast as possible is something that you can change with an explicit and especially like a top-down conversation about email. So I think giving people the license to not answer email for days or even weeks is sounds crazy, but when you let email stack up and if you know that it's okay that your email stacks up and that people for things that are really important will come and find you or seek you out or they'll email you again or something, there'll be some additional signal. We just can't treat every email like it's the same level of importance. We, right. we, we can't respond to everything. Otherwise, we're just dealing with other people's micro priorities all day long. At a team level, at a larger organizational level, you can say, our email use is nuts. It's now okay to not respond right away. And you can you can also say as at a team level, we're blocking off the the mornings. We're gonna we're gonna not have meetings before 10 a.m. And that time before that then is yours. It's your time before 10 or before 11 a.m. to to exercise, you know, to take your kid to school, whatever it might be, and to and to have the space to have a good hour, hour and a half once you get into the office to do the thing that's most important to you first. And and we're not we're not gonna I'm gonna be you know maybe I'm the boss and say I'm gonna be like actually I'm gonna call you out if you send an email between those hours. Like I don't the, your email should not be the thing that's the most important. It should not be the thing that comes first. Mm. Skip the morning check in. This is one of our tactics in the book. Don't check in on everything first. First, we want you to do the thing that's most important for your job. Some of us, yes, or some people email could be like actually what their job is. But the vast majority of people, we act as though email is the most important thing, but it's not. We're not doing anything. We obviously talk a lot about placing value on team collaboration and communication. Those become kind of like words that, that trip off the tongue very easily. Yes. But they're, yeah, they're they sound good. They, they sound, sound easy good. and they sound yeah. obvious, but they're harder to yeah. do in, yeah. in practice sometimes. Yes. Um, yeah. And I wonder if that's, you know, a lot of times because we're distracted and, and focusing on the things that, that maybe don't matter quite so much. But I'm wondering, does the make time process like impact collaboration or, or the creative process at all? Like, are there any best, best practices there? Well, crappy collaboration is cheap and right. really effective collaboration is expensive. And yeah. by expensive, I mean like it takes, it takes thought, it takes planning, it takes a lot of time. And it takes a lot of attention and focus, but it, that kind of collaboration is not what most of us experience in our in our work most of the time. Most of the what we experience it's collaboration is open office plans and hearing everybody talking and trying to just get some quiet, you know, trying to put headphones on or whatever so I can get something done. Or maybe the, the constant interruptions that come from messaging software or from email, the constant interruptions that come from meetings where we're collaborating, but the what we're doing and what we can accomplish even in those default 30 to 60 minute chunks is not very meaningful. So it's not to say, I mean, some of those things kind of have to happen for a variety of reasons, but they don't have to happen all the time. When we want really meaningful collaboration, and this was one of the insights that led to the design sprint, the meaningful collaboration takes a lot of, it takes something special to actually get people to work together 
in a in a meaningful and effective way back and forth. In in make time, I think we're really trying to create space. And again, you know, we're not trying to reinvent the way people do all of their work. And and um, a lot of this is kind of it's it's focused on the reader as an individual and saying like, look, let's talk about what you want to get done. We just trust that you have an idea of what's important for you to do at work, at home, in your life. And let's talk about some tactics you can use to fight whatever's going on and, and make the space for yourself. But these ideas are still really important. Like that, as an individual, you can create quiet. This is something we have to do in the design sprints. Even when we've got seven people in the room and everybody's, you know, they're all week together. We we intentionally again and again and again in the design sprints make everybody shut up and quietly on their own, think of their own solution, whether it's, you know, just something we call a note and vote where everybody's kind of writing down the answer or whether it's when we're sketching, we're not brainstorming as a group, we're quietly working. Quiet work is so hard to get. And in the design sprint, we found we had to work so hard to protect it and create it. And we kind of figured out like, oh, yeah, the max people could focus is an hour, hour and a half generally speaking. But if they could do that, if you could set up a circumstance where on Tuesday they were focused for an hour and a half on solving the problem, it's amazing how good those solutions were. And so with make time, it's kind of like, how can we create that time when you're quiet? Because you inevitably in the office, you will encounter other people. You will have to collaborate with other people. With make time, we're really concerned with an individual getting time to themselves. And then also with how we have high quality human interactions that are just about getting energy from talking to people we care about. And some of those people are our colleagues. And so you mentioned constant interruption. And you talk about this idea in the book of infinity pools. Yeah. And how they're force propelling our business. Like, can, can you explain what infinity pools are? Like, what, what are some examples? Yeah, so this was... At that at that moment when I, I described sitting on the you know, floor with my sons mm. and my my older son kind of inadvertently calling me out for for my iPhone addiction, the things that I was in my rage as I deleted the apps off of my phone, the things that I was compelled to delete were the things that I felt like caused that itch. Like you know in the Lord of the Rings when. Oh, no, I guess it's sorry. I can't remember if it's if it's the Hobbit or Lord of the Rings. It doesn't matter. Although your your listeners, the listeners maybe maybe nerds enough to call me out on this, which one it was. But when Bilbo Baggins is like he like he like finds himself wearing the ring without even thinking about it. Like he just like wants to put it on, you know, without even thinking about it. it like calls to him from his pocket. And I think a lot like that's the way the phone makes me feel. When there's something on, there are some things on the phone that just make me want to want to call for it. And they're infinity pools. They are things that have an infinite amount of content. And there's always a chance that there's something new on there. And there's always a chance that that something new on there will make me feel good or it would just make me feel more up to date or something. It'll give me like a little dopamine hit. And there's a lot of conversation about this in in the press and the media right now about these, these dopamine hits and how these things are engineered. But they're really like there's a broad spectrum of things that fall into this category. It is obviously it's social media. It's really well suited towards this. So Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, they're really good at this. YouTube, there's always, there always could be something new and interesting on YouTube. There always could be something new and interesting on Netflix. There always could be, if I have a game on my phone, like the game is always something that I could do, you know, maybe fiddle with for a minute. Um, and the news is actually like a really powerful infinity pool. They, you can never possibly be up to date on the news in our modern world. There's mm. new breaking news being reported all the time. Mm. Everything, stories are updated incrementally and they get that little red tag, you know, they're yep. updated. And, um, you know, there's, 
in our email and the things that we feel like we're being productive staying on top of are also infinity pools. There's always could be something new there. And then like a web browser is sort of the ultimate infinity pool because you can never be on top of the internet. <laughs> so, so there are a lot of these things. What I think is really powerful is, and because I'm very optimistic about technology and I, I love my phone. I, I still have, you know, this is six years that I've had all these things deleted off of my phone most of the time. And I still like, I, I got an iPhone 10, like, you know, I, I bought it like the day it came out. Like I, I'm obsessed still with the, the power and the wonder of these devices. If you cut off all the infinity pools, there's still really cool stuff on there. You know, like, um, there's, there's, there are maps, there are podcasts, there's, there's limitless music, which is not something that is going to distract me and pull at me. And, you know, I'm not going to sit on my phone, like browsing around Google Maps, and, like looking at different cities. That's not going to like pull me away from something that's more meaningful. Um, the camera is amazing. There's all these little purposeful mm-hmm. built apps that are, that are tools that I can use for different things that are incredible. I don't have to have everything on the phone. If I have half of the smartphone, it's still really powerful. And you point out that infinity pools are often, you know, we've talked about defaults, and that's like uh, often the default in, in, in technology products today. The book has a lot of great tips on on how to create barriers to to dis- distraction. An interesting question, like as as product teams or designers, like do we have a responsibility to to prevent our products from being in infinity pools? Like how do we learn how to build better defaults while still growing our product or business? Yeah, this is such a good question. And it's funny because this interview we're doing right now, this is one of like my first interviews talking about make time. And something that I've noticed right off the bat is that, that people are interested in the answer to this question. What is the advice for people in technology building these products? And I have thoughts about this, but to be honest, it's not a big focal point of make time. And so I'll I'll tell you my kind of half-formed thoughts. But I'll start by talking about what is the point of make time. And when we talk about tech and our experience building products in make time, we're directed in make time at the individual. And a lot of the tech backlash that's going on right now is directed at the companies, rightfully so. That's an important message. Companies need to be held accountable. They need to feel like there's some fire on them to be respectful of our attention and, and, our, and our privacy. And, um, but really, like not taking advantage of these glitches in our brains that lead us to always want to be up to date on things. So as an individual, what you can do is redesign the way you use these products, reset your own defaults and choose what what you want. Set up speed bumps that, you know, push those things away from you. So for me, I have very low self-control. You might not, you know, person listening or you, Stuart, you you might not need to delete all those things off your phone. Maybe there's just one thing that would make you feel better if you could delete it. Or maybe you've got a handle on it. For many people like me, it's actually helpful to just like delete those things and only have access to them when I'm on a computer, you know. Mm. But I think that the as an individual, first and foremost, we have to say, like, we can't wait for tech companies to get this right because they, they're, we, you know, we can't count on all of the tech companies to all align and, and, and none of them to, to sort of take advantage of the fact that everyone else is playing nice and, and, and sort of steal our attention away. We have to, as individuals, say, like, look, I'm going to take control of this. I'm going to figure out how I can make space and make these tools work for me. So the book has a lot of tactics for how as an individual you can do that. We have to be honest, like no matter how, if you're building products, no matter how much you care about a person's intention, if you're just doing that because you think it's the right thing to do, there's going to be business pressures that conflict with Mm -hmm. you. 
And, you know, we all, everybody beats up on Facebook and, and I do too. I'm no, I'm no huge fan of Facebook, but look, like Facebook, they have conflicting uh, influences on them, right? They, they make money the more time you spend on their website. So, okay, so we can all, we can all see that. That's obvious. So you look at Google, like look at the, what they're doing with Android and yeah, like that's good. They're okay. Maybe Google's the good guy, but you look closely at it and it's like, well, yeah, but what about YouTube? Like YouTube makes money the more time you spend on there, the more you're using it. The, the more valuable it is to Google. So you look on their digital well-being thing and they talk about like how they have like YouTube for kids. And I mean, like they're, it's, it's complicated for them too. And you look at Apple and like, okay, well, no, well, surely for Apple, it's cut and dry, right? They're just selling the devices. They're not incentivized or anything else. But what about games? Like if you open up the, the app store on your iPhone, you're going to see games all over that thing featured, right? Like they are everywhere. Apple makes a ton of money off of games. They don't make any money necessarily. Like Facebook doesn't necessarily help them or Instagram or, you know, there's a lot of things they can throw under the bus with those things, but they're conflicted too. The games make a lot of money for them as well. So everybody is conflicted. I think that if you're building products, my advice is if you build something that is truly meaningful, that goes beyond it, there's you're going to not only be – that's a path to success and there's going to be opportunities there because this topic will grow. And I've been shocked. We started writing this book two years ago. It's shocking now to see how much more people are talking about this yeah. topic now than they were while we were writing it. You know, It almost feels like we're late to the party. Like you know, It takes so darn long for a book to be published. But this topic will grow and grow. People are going to care more and be more aware and there's going to be more pressure. More people are going to be coming up with good solutions. So I think it's actually – going to be in your business interest cool. to figure out how to build something that has meaning beyond just taking advantage of those glitches, beyond just sucking people back and back and back. People are going to get savvy to that. They're going to shut that stuff down and you're going to have to find a better way to, to build your product. So if you look at it as not just the right thing to do, not just something you're guilted into or the government's forcing you to do or whatever, but like something that actually you want to do because it's the right thing to do. I think most people in tech, most people building products, they're optimistic about technology. They think if we can bring the future to life, that'll be good for people. And I don't think there's like some evil empire of folks who are like really like, you know, deviously manipulating us. The reality is people want to do the right thing. I think the right thing and the right thing for the business is going to be making things that are respectful of our, our attention that give us space and time and, um, and, and really are useful tools. Jake, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, finally, where and when can, can listeners get their, get their hands on the book? Yeah, so the book comes out on September 25th, uh, 2018. If somebody's listening to this way in the future, <laughs> it's already out, uh, but it comes out on September 25th. You'd be able to get it everywhere. If you go to maketimebook.com, there's some links, so depending on what country you're in or whatever, but it's going to be out as a, as a physical book, as an ebook, um, as an audio book. If you didn't get enough of listening to my voice, you can listen to the whole book being read by me and, and John Zaratsky. Um, so, yeah, please do check it out, maketimebook.com. Well, we wish you every success. We're looking forward to, to trying some of these things out ourselves. Uh, we'll, we'll let you know how it goes. Thanks so much. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, visit soundcloud.com slash intercom. If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.com.